Welcome to another edition of ABI Podcasts. I'm Sam Giordano, Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Congress is now sharply focused on the rise in home foreclosures, its causes, consequences, and what to do about it. Among the proposals to cushion the impact of foreclosures on both borrowers and the housing market is a proposal to use the bankruptcy laws to allow bankruptcy judges to rewrite the terms of a mortgage in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy. There's no shortage of blame for the mortgage crisis that has driven the economy into the ditch. Most housing experts view rising foreclosures in terms of the inevitable bursting of the housing bubble after years of risky, even dangerous loans, packaged in securitization vehicles that no one fully understood, and made to borrowers without sufficient ability to repay them when the loan terms reset. But our guest today has a different cause at the root of the mortgage crisis. He believes that the 2005 bankruptcy law contributed significantly to the surge of subprime mortgage foreclosures by shifting risk from credit card lenders to mortgage lenders. Prior to the law, goes the theory, consumers could freely use Chapter 7 to discharge most unsecured debts, freeing up their income stream to pay secured debts like home mortgages. Now, consumer debtors caught by the law's means test are shifted instead into Chapter 13 repayment plans, where their future income must pay more to unsecureds, leaving less for the home mortgage. The result is higher foreclosure rates for the cash-constrained mortgage holders, according to our guest, Dr. Donald Morgan. He is a research officer at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where he writes about credit markets and advises the bank on the monitoring of credit risk. His articles have appeared in numerous academic journals and Fed publications, and he's taught at Columbia University. His PhD is from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Morgan, to ABI Podcast. Thanks. Appreciate you having me. Uh, first, um, have I uh, accurately uh, captured your theory and argument, and, and feel free to elaborate on it. Uh, yeah, you did a good job. Let me just say first that uh, uh, I'm going to speak for myself here and not the uh, Federal Reserve System. Uh, as far as our argument, yeah, you were on the nose. And we we argue in the beginning of the paper that um, we think there may be an overlooked suspect that contributed to the to the rise in uh, subprime foreclosures, overlooked by comparison with the the usual suspects, which were which you already enumerated, you know, falling home prices, risky lending decisions, and the like. What what we think is new, or, or the suspect we think that we've identified, is uh, the bankruptcy reform that took effect in October of 2005. It was a big change. It was the first uh, major overhaul in the bankruptcy law in, in 25 years. And uh, as we point out at the beginning of our papers, you know. It, we, I was a little surprised that this didn't come up earlier. I mean, it seems it would be surprising to us if you would have a big change in the bankruptcy law and then a big rise and a big shock in credit markets and then not think they were connected. But our, uh, our specific argument, which you also correctly summarize, is that the, uh, 
the law, the bankruptcy reform in effect, uh, made credit card and other secured debt more, sorry, I misspoke, made credit card and other unsecured debt more secure, meaning it made it harder for over-indebted borrowers to file Chapter 7 and have those unsecured debts discharged, that is, wiped out. And as a result of that change, borrowers who before, when they were having trouble making both their credit card payments and their mortgages, and who might have filed Chapter 7 and avoided the credit card debts, now have to continue paying on both. That is, if they, if they don't pass the means test, uh, they cannot file Chapter 7. They would have to, if they file, file Chapter 13 and continue paying at least part of their credit card debt. So that's a long, long-winded summary, longer than yours, but in effect it means that uh, people who might have filed 7 before to free up cash flow for the mortgage uh, may not be able to do that now since the reform. So we think that that's either going to, in the paper we emphasize that that might cause some borrowers to not be able to avoid foreclosure. And we think, just to, to wrap this up, but we think that there may be another channel that we don't really talk about in the paper is that some borrowers might have been forced to just sell their home. In other words, they, didn't, they weren't necessarily forced into foreclosure, but they were forced to sell their home. So we think that the, the timing of the decline in home prices may have also had something to do with that bankruptcy reform. Okay. What um, what led you to this uh, question, this topic, to begin with? Uh, well, as you noted, I've, I've always studied credit markets and lately been studying consumer credit more than any other type of credit market. Uh, I wrote a paper with two other colleagues here at the New York Fed on the bankruptcy reform uh, a couple of years ago. And... Um, so I just happened to know a little bit about the about the reform, and then when the subprime uh, mortgage market collapsed and all this trouble ensued, uh, it just occurred to me that they probably were not unrelated. That is the reform and the crises. I'm on sort of new territory here. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a bankruptcy expert. I know more than I did two years ago, but I mean I'm an economist. Obviously, there's a, a number of um other identified uh, factors, and we're trying to um, uh, attempt to quantify the role the law may have had um, in comparison to to some of the other causes that have been uh, fingered at, at the root. Um, you know, lenders handing out mortgages without proof of income, giving interest-only loans because borrowers couldn't afford uh, something more conventional, uh, lending for uh, more than the value. Uh, is there a way to uh, kind of uh, uh, put in a, a rank order, um, uh, whether it's in your in your paper, perhaps, about which is which would be the most responsible for the high foreclosures? I mean, are those more important or less important than the 2005 law, in your opinion? Uh, I suspect suspect those are more important. I mean, uh, our goal really in this paper was just to point out what we think was a neglected factor, but the uh, and we, we come up with an estimate of uh, the number of foreclosures this might have con- caused, and it's, 
it's to the, we come up with a number of about 130,000 foreclosures a year uh, in 06 and 07. Um, and that's, that's a big number by itself, perhaps, but it's small, really, compared to the total number of foreclosures that, that we witness. You know, it's, people are talking about numbers like 2 million foreclosures, I believe, in, in 2007. So, you know, we're talking about maybe 5% due to the, the law. So I would, you know, our goal was to say, look, this, is, this mattered, but not that it was most important. I'm sorry, just to, to, um, uh, to, to follow up, for the, for the law to have a, uh, a principal impact, the means test would have to uh, capture um, a, a higher percentage of can-pay debtors than what otherwise um, uh, meets the eye. The early studies of the impact of, of BAPSIPA showed relatively few debtors caught by the means test and shifted into repayment plans. If you look at statistics from the U.S. Trustee Program, surveys from the Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, reports by Chapter 13 trustees and the like, suggested, and the stats tend to bear this out, that while there was an initial surge in Chapter 13s as part of the mix of consumer cases, now that ratio is is back closer to the traditional 70-30 split favoring uh, Chapter 7. And so that's led most people to uh, to uh, uh, confirm, uh, and not just the bill's critics from the start, that the law is a bit of a bust because it has identified so few can-pay debtors, and that's because they simply aren't out there to be found. So are you suggesting in the paper that the law is actually capturing more of the consumers via the means test than we would have otherwise thought? Well, you're you're right. First of all, that's sort of a crucial point for the way we've tried to link the reform to foreclosures, namely that crucial point is that this means test has to bind, causing some people who would have filed Chapter 7 to either not file or go to 13. Um, Yeah, I know, and I know that the early estimates were that it it wasn't going to bond, that's the economist jargon, but you know, that it wasn't going to matter very much. But remember, we're just talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, the crucial thing is just that it, it can't, it has to bind for some fraction of people. It doesn't necessarily have to be everyone caught by it, but it's, you know, to the extent it affects anyone, then that could affect foreclosures. I know that I, we do cite uh, a study in 2008 by uh, Michelle White, who's a, a bankruptcy expert and, and a co-author t- named Zhu, uh, and they, they looked at, uh, you know, there's more data now on the details of, of filers, uh, at least for Delaware, Delaware sort of, I guess, led the charge to make this process more transparent. And they actually came up for in 06 with a pretty sizable fraction of people who uh, who filed Chapter 13 and who did not pass the means test. So, so they estimated that of uh, of 586 households that filed Chapter 13, 22% did not pass the means test. So I think that's. That's a sizable number, and then of those, 89% owed some unsecured debt. I'm actually reading from a footnote in her paper. Mm-hmm. And then among that, 90% of Chapter 13 filers who actually filed payment plans, 
um, 38% committed to repay some of their unsecured debt. And so we take that last number as the, as the that's the set of households who we think before the reform could have avoided all their unsecured debt, but after avoid paying it, but after the reform were forced to repay part of it. So we think so in the end, and we we think it's uh, uh, it's a non-trivial number that, that that we're bound. So so that's the first my first answer to your question is. Um, you know, we think someone must have been bound by it, or, or we wouldn't have found an effect, basically. And then, secondly, there's you know this guy. This goes beyond our paper, but I mean, I think you know, this is a, the 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 reform had lots of facets. A lot of things changed. We emphasize the means test because that was the most prominent change, and we could think of why that might matter. But uh, for example, it, the law. I mean, I hope there's more research on this, trying to link the reform to what's happened since, because I think there may be other channels where it mattered. For example, um, the the new law limits uh, repeat filings under Chapter 13. And from what I've gathered in, this, in these studies, is that was a method, repeat filings or serial filings, if you will, under 13 was one way that distressed borrowers would postpone foreclosure. And so that may be an entirely different way in which the law contributed to to uh, foreclosures, entirely different from the story that we're, that we're emphasizing. And, and, of course, that channel, you know, that is by limiting repeat filings in the church, Chapter 13, that doesn't hinge on the means test at all. Mm-hmm. Do you think the law encouraged or otherwise influenced people not in bankruptcy to uh, pay credit card debt ahead of mortgage debt, especially for those who were headed upside down on their mortgage, with the sort of theory being that they would keep their credit cards current for uh, daily expenses, keep the car loan current as a means to get to a job, and and once the um, home mortgage um, went out of whack, uh, that they, they wouldn't worry so much about the mortgage in a free-falling market. So I'm going to make sure I understand. You, you mean whether that might have happened after the law changed? People decided to pay more attention to the credit card than the mortgage? Correct. Before. There are many housing experts, particularly in, in states like California, which had a, has had a high incidence of, of people... Uh, upside down uh, on their mortgage, and it's a non-recourse state, um, to, to simply invert um, their kind of priorities about where they allocated uh, their resources to pay debts. And because they're using credit cards on a daily basis, um, there was more of an instinct uh, to keep those current. Um, and you can, you know, essentially stay in a house uh, rent-free, waiting to be, waiting for the foreclosure uh, process to uh, to work its way. Did the bankruptcy law? Do you think people are thinking about the bankruptcy law in terms of impacting this sort of behavior? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think I think the really basic story of how things were before the law and then after is that before the law changed, households might be tempted to use credit cards to pay the mortgage, because you could 
have credit card discharge, debt discharge under Chapter 7, and it seems now it may be the opposite. I mean, I've heard anecdotally that households are using home equity loans to pay the credit card because it's, it's harder to avoid the credit card debt, but you might be able to, as you said, uh, walk away from the home. I mean, it's, it's hard to know for sure how much of that shift post-bankruptcy reform is, is because of the reform and how much of it's just because, you know, home prices are falling, and so paying the mortgage is just not as economically attractive. I mean, you, you know, you, you might, some borrowers might feel they're putting good money after bad, but as you pointed out, they're still going to want to have some revolving credit available to them and a, and a credit card. So there could be other reasons besides reform why households' priorities in paying debt may have changed. But I do think, to recap, I do think that the, the reform changed the priorities. Let's talk a little bit about the, um, the impact um, that your paper um, attempts to identify between uh, uh, subprime foreclosures and states with higher bankruptcy exemptions. Um, in particular, this is... Uh, chart four of your uh, of your paper, um, and and looking at uh, states uh, like say Florida, uh, with an unlimited homestead exemption, uh, or Nevada, with a with a less generous uh, exemption, but still one that's relatively high. Um, you you have a chart which. Uh, which shows the percent change in subprime foreclosures uh, in the various states um, with different exemption uh, schemes. Can you uh, explain um, that uh, relationship and how you think the law may have uh, uh, affected people's decisions in the various exemption states? Okay. Yeah, well, chart four is it's sort of the chart that makes our point. And, and at the same time contradicts it to some extent. Um, the basic, the reason we even have a chart like this where we're trying to show that the, that the change in bankruptcy before and after the reform varies across states uh, according to their homestead exemption, we need, we need some, we need, it's a just basic cause and effect problem. You know, we know the reform happened in the same at the same time everywhere so another so we have a chart showing look uh, right after the reform happened subprime foreclosures went up that's the very first chart in the paper but, but that's that's not going to convince any, anyone that there's they're actually causally connected so we really needed we needed evidence uh, showing that um, that the surge in foreclosures was higher in states where the bankruptcy reform would be expected to have a bigger effect. So that was our goal. That's the, our so-called identification strategy, identifying the effects. And our argument that led us to show this chart was that, well, you know, imagine a state before the reform like uh, Maryland, where I think the, uh, the homestead exemption was uh, zero right. or quite low. There's no exemption. Right. Well, in a state like that, filing Chapter 7 uh, wouldn't really provide much benefit to a borrower because if they had any home equity, credit card lenders would still have a claim to it. 
So in a state with a zero or low exemption, Chapter 7 was not very, very protective before the reform. So therefore, we argue, we shouldn't observe much uh, change in foreclosures before and after. In other words, the reform really shouldn't matter very much in a state with a low exemption because Chapter 7 wasn't very protective. By contrast, in a state with high exemptions, um, Chapter 7 would be protective. You could, if you had a lot of home equity, were having trouble making both the credit card payment and the mortgage payment, but you didn't want to sell your home, you might consider filing Chapter 7, and as long as your state's home equity exemption exceeded how much equity you had, you, you wouldn't risk losing anything to the credit card companies. So in that state, Chapter 7 might be tempting, at least before the reform. So that's where we would expect the biggest effect after. So, so that was that's the the logic on that uh, would lead us to, to do it to present a chart like this. So, and then as you but as you point out that well the we do find what we expected to we partially we, we find that that is uh, as exemptions go up across states as we, if we rank states by their exemption exemptions we find that. The, the change in subprime foreclosures, the increase, that is, after the reform, tended to be higher in states with higher exemptions. We find a, you know, what looks like a positive relationship. However, we do not find what we would have expected. We do not find that in the states with the, the absolute highest exemptions, meaning the ones that are completely unlimited, like Florida, mm -hmm. Texas, we don't find that uh, that the change in foreclosures was highest in those states. So that's a sense in which, so if you look at that chart, I mean, the, part of it seems consistent with our story and part of it contradicts it. So that's why I actually, in, so I have a footnote on that. We, we don't have a good explanation for that. That's, I think, you know, a weakness of, of the finding. Uh, we have a footnote saying, you know, kind of going through some possibilities why, why we're not getting what we expected with the unlimited states, you know, but it's, we're, we're just sort of, it's, a, it's an ad hoc explanation. Um, Understood. And, and, that's why at the be, and that's why at the beginning of this, uh, the paper, when I'm we're summarizing results, we say the results seem mostly consistent. And we have some other, you know, that, we have other evidence of an entirely different sort that the reform mattered, but, but that's the answer that, to that question. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, that's, that missing link there for the high exemption states does make us pause, though. Mm hmm there's another uh, data set to take a look at, too, which may also have a bit of an inconsistent result. And this is, I believe it's chart one of the paper, which shows the rate of subprime foreclosures before and after the 2005 law. While the rate went from about 3% uh, when the law went into effect to about 7% by the second quarter of 07, the chart also sh shows a sharp spike in late 2000 to rates of about 9%, even higher than they uh, were at uh, what would be the otherwise uh, peak period post-BAPSEPA. Uh, so if uh, BAPSEPA is the cause uh, more recently, uh, what's the, uh, how, how is that consistent with the sharp spike that occurred 
uh, when the law was just a glimmer in the eyes of Congress in 2000. Right. Well, that, that's a good point. That worried me initially. I was puzzled by that, what you just noted, that the rise was actually subprime foreclosures was larger in the last recession. That's, that is the point. That was a recession, so it's not really a mystery that... Well, it's really before the recession. Well, they started rising before the recession. Yeah, that, that would presumably would have been, you know, interest rates uh, were rising. But I think one thing to note is that the, the subprime mortgage market got much, much bigger between since 2001. I mean, so in other words, a seven, well, two points. Uh, a seven, firstly, a 7% uh, delinquency rate, a foreclosure rate, in 07 and quarter two, that's a much larger dollar amount of foreclosures than a 9% foreclosure rate back in 2001 because the, because the market just got so much bigger. And then um, you, see, you see what I'm saying? Mm. But the rate, though, the rate was higher um, uh, in the earlier period than it is during... Um, uh, the more recent period, which is, is the one that we've spent all the time sort of focusing on in terms of the impact of, of subprime on the larger uh, mortgage crisis. Right. I mean, I, but, but the, the rate is, was higher then, but the overall market got so much bigger that the overall impact was much larger in this recent thing. I mean, the, 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 it was the, uh, the, the rate went up by two, two percentage, was two percentage points higher in the last recession than it was. Remember, our, char our chart's not completely up to date. If, if you, ex you extended the, uh, our chart to the current quarter, uh, I believe that the, the foreclosure rate on subprime mortgages would be higher than in the last recession. Mm -hmm. um, again, I'm not, you know, we're not, we're not claiming, you know, there can be multiple causes of these surges. We're not claiming that, uh, that, the, that the bankruptcy reform is the, the only cause of, surging subprime foreclosures. There could have been something else that drove them up in the early part of it, you know, 1998 to 2000, 2000 entirely, you know, it could have been something else, like a weakening economy or rising mm -hmm. interest rates. Well, clearly there are um, uh, a number of causes uh, at, at issue here, and I think um, it's, uh, it's fair to say that uh, Congress is likely to be uh, revisiting the 2005 bankruptcy law to uh, see uh, what sort of reconsideration um, might be uh, in order and uh, perhaps your uh, research will help uh, Congress strike a different balance than the one they favored uh, four years ago. We're, we're about out of time. Um, uh, Don, I thank you very much uh, for being with us. Let me, let me just ask one more question. If people want to read the full study uh, that you and your colleagues uh, put together. Where can they find it? Uh, they can find it on the, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's website. If they, for example, if they just Google Donald P. Morgan and then uh, bankruptcy reform, it should be the first or second link that they get. Okay, terrific. We'll encourage them to, uh, to do that. Uh, we thank you very much for being uh, uh, with us today. Thank you for sharing your uh, findings and um, uh, ideas on the possible uh, impact of the 2005 bankruptcy. Thanks very much for having me. And we thank our audience uh, for also joining us. You can listen to or download more than 60 
podcasts on the ABI website at www.abiworld.org. Until next time, this is ABI's Executive Director Sam Giordano saying goodbye.